In 89 AD, Julius Caesar left his gardens, a peaceful sanctuary across the Tiber, to the citizens of Rome. But now the gardens and their sacred grove have become dangerous haunts, especially for women. When her husband has to leave the city, it falls to Flavia Albia Falco to supervise his building project in an old grotto. But then a woman meets a dire fate, and two slaves given to her family by the emperor also vanish. The man standing with him was the superintendent of Caesar's gardens and the grove. Beritus by name, he was older, not far from the end of his administrative career. A sagging, thread-veined face with heavily pouched eyes, extremely uncomfortable at this scene. Some of his staff had discovered a woman's corpse not long after they had begun their search that morning. Almost simultaneously, others nearby came across skeletal remains. A decomposed body had once been buried at the back of an arbour, but due to the winter dieback of foliage, weathered bones could be seen, partly exposed by animals. The Grove of the Caesars is the eighth in a series of historical crime novels set in ancient Rome by award-winning author Lindsay Davis. In this edition of Historical Fiction, History Hits' Alice Roberts talks to Lindsay Davis, the unassailable market leader in the crime in ancient Rome genre. This is Historical Fiction. Lindsay, it's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So we're talking today about The Grove of Caesars, your latest novel in the Flavia Albia series. I call her Albia and I wish I had chosen a name that was easier to say, to be honest. When I invented her, she wasn't going to be the heroine. And now I regret it, but can't go back. (laughs) Well, there's always time for another series. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Could you paint a picture for our listeners about the historical setting? I've been writing about ancient Rome now for 30 years and when I started it was just at the beginning of the Flavian period with Vespasian as a new and we hoped good emperor and I wrote 20 books with him in the background so that was with Rome becoming a wonderful place to live but we've now moved on with Flavia Albia to the reign of his second son Domitian the paranoid tyrant so it's a much darker society with Domitian looming over it. Nobody knows whether he's going to alight on them and basically kill them. So that's given me a new version of Rome. It's also a Rome where a whole lot of building is going on. It's usually not thought of in connection with Domitian, but he rebuilt like crazy. So that's good to describe and to talk about. Flavia Albia is newly married, just setting up with a husband who's a building contractor, though also for a brief period he's going to be a magistrate. And that gives me lots of ideas for plots. You mentioned there that this was a particularly dark time in Rome's history. Was that something that was confined to the political sphere or was this something that affected normal people? You know, were people just scared to walk around the streets on their own? Ordinary people, were were they as scared as we are at the moment? I don't think so, no. I think lower down society, Domitian hated the Senate, so they were trembling a bit. But lower down society, they just carried on as normal. And in the general sweep of the history of Rome, this was part of the golden imperial age. So there was lots of prosperity, lots of trade, and people could live 
good lives if they had the talent and the means to do so. You've really narrowed down into this particular point. I have. What year is it, actually? AD 89. So it's well into Domitian's reign. We know what he's going to be like, but we haven't quite reached the point where committees are going to think about assassinating him, which I have written about. As an ex-civil servant, I loved doing that particular assassination. <laughs> but we, we haven't quite got there. There's a lot of grumbling about him among people with liberal views, which is Albia and her husband and her family, including her famous father, Falco, the previous Roman detective I wrote about. But basically, life goes on. We've just had a triumph for a war which Domitian didn't exactly win. He scraped through it and paid his enemies off. So we're heading into Saturnalia, which is Christmas. Well, we've done a bit of history. Now let's get on to the fiction. Can you tell me about your characters? What kind of journey have you taken them on? Well, let's start off with the setting, the grove. It's a sacred grove of plane trees in the Transtiberina, which is what we call Trastevere, on the far side of the river Tiber from most of the major monuments of Rome. And it's an area that had not originally been part of the city, but was added later by the Emperor Augustus. It's full of foreigners and people with the kind of noisy or smelly trades that they didn't want in the main part of Rome. And it's full of imperial gardens because at one point it was an empty space and from Julius Caesar onwards, the emperors and their family had wonderful public gardens there. They are public for the most part. In among them is this grove, which is a sacred grove dedicated to Augustus's dead grandsons. And Albius starts by saying gardens are not everything they're made out to be. They are, in fact, not places for leisure and enjoyment, but they're full of dangerous things. And she starts off by hinting there could be dead bodies in a garden that you have to be careful of. And of course, she finds out that lurking under the trees, there is a serial killer. Possibly there's another serial killer in this book, but I'm not going to give that away. I want to make a complaint. Poets are wrong about gardens. Your average poet, scratching away to impress his peers in the Writers Guild at their dusty haunt on the Aventine, the Temple of Minerva, will portray a garden as a metaphor for productive peace and quiet. In such secluded places, poets will say, men who own multiple estates engage in happy contemplation of weighty intellectual matters while acquiring a glow of health. These landowners, idiot patrons of ridiculous authors, take pleasure from topery cut in the shape of their own names. Yet they avoid the slur of self-indulgence simply because the box tree autographs have roots in the earth. (laughs) So on the one hand, it talks about the archaeology of Roman gardening, which we know such a lot about from frescoes. And we know that they loved plants and birds and fountains. So that is beautiful and gorgeous and refreshes the soul as we at the moment need so desperately. But on the other hand, we've got this dark theme. And I had a lot of fun exploring the idea of serial killers, which I've done before, but this time I did it slightly differently. And I discuss, or she discusses, why they do it, how they do it, why they don't get caught sometimes for a very long time, 
And then there are also episodes where she's working with the vigilees who are the equivalent of the police force. And she talks about ways of interrogating suspects, good ways and bad ways. And eventually this particular serial killer is found because Albia, and it is her, realises where the clue is that will pin down the person who's doing it. I think it's really interesting that point about serial killers in ancient Rome because it's such a violent place in lots of ways in terms of people would have gone and watched gladiator fights, they would have often been at war, death was perhaps more normal than it is for us today. How does that change what people thought about serial killers? There was plenty of murder, some of it organised murder, yes. But it seems to me that from what we know of human nature, the psychosis is in the human genes and they must have had them. We may not necessarily know of any in particular, although the very first Albia story was about somebody killing people with poison needles, which seems to perhaps have been a real incidence and a known incidence of a serial killer working in Rome. They're there, I'm sure they're there. And the only difference, really, when you're writing a novel, a historical novel, is that you have to try and solve it without all the forensic stuff that we are so used to from um, contemporary detective stories. Well, it seems like it would have been absolutely impossible to be able to no, work out... No, nothing is impossible to <laughs> Falcon and Albion. They, they solve them. Yeah. But, but it's a bit like if people remember when Shaw Taylor used to be on television saying, use your eyes, your ears and something else, your nose, possibly. They have only basic human tools and their own intelligence and experience to draw upon. These gardens... That seems like quite a generous gesture. Mm. Was that kind of gift to the public quite a common thing? Yes, Albia makes a joke about it, really. We know the one that Julius Caesar left from Shakespeare, of course, and then there were others later on, which may have been more or less private. There's one feature over there which was, by this time, had been superseded by the Colosseum, as we call it, There was a huge amphitheatre or arena that could be used for mock trireme fights and that features. We have boats in this book. You wouldn't expect it necessarily in the middle of the room, but I'll, I'll tackle anything just for a change. Well, one of the points in the book where things start to go a bit pear-shaped is a birthday party. So could you just tell me a bit about birthday parties in Roman times? Well, we know that people's birthdays were anniversaries that they did give honour to. One of the ways we know about it is that you could show your political allegiance by honouring the birthday of a political leader. And after Julius Caesar was murdered, people who were opposed to the new regime used to celebrate the birthdays of Brutus and Cassius. And that was illegal, so they then got into trouble. So we know that birthdays were very important. It's tied up with the fact that your birth makes you a citizen or doesn't make you a citizen if you're a slave. We know it would be important. And the chap in question, it's his 50th. I'm sure that numbers with a zero on the end or it wouldn't have had a zero in Roman numbering, but they would have been as important as they are to us. So he decides that he'll throw a birthday party for all his friends and probably the people he works with. 
and he chooses to have it outside in the public gardens, which is his big mistake because his wife goes for a walk and doesn't come back. If I've been invited to a birthday party in ancient Rome, what kind of things should I expect? This one is set in the evening because I've assumed it's like a fancy dinner. There is entertainment. He's hired the fabulous Tertinius, who is a famous harpist, who had played at Albia's wedding. So that's useful because she can later interview him and get a witness statement from him because she knows him. And then there's going to be eating and drinking. They have actually got hired caterers. I'm sure that for big banquets, there were hired caterers that you could have. And beforehand, Albia is told that it's all going to be very respectable, though she's slightly worried that it probably won't be when people have had too much to eat and drink. (laughs) And he loves it. He just throws himself into it. And it is a terrible human tragedy when his wife wanders off for a breather and is seized by the serial killer. Yes, and I think it's that moment where he's told about it. It's really moving. It's quite poignant, really. I'm glad you were moved, because one of the things I like to do, although my books always have to have murder in them, I like to address it thinking about the human cost, not only to the victim, but the people they leave behind. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, Lindsay, I'd just like to talk about one of the passages in your book. I'll just read it out for you now. Sometimes I tell people I come from Britain. They find this exotic, which explains me having an unusual role. British women are mystical empire bashers. Everybody knows that. All I needed was a queenly stance and wild red hair. 
<laughs> yes, well, Albia's background is that she was supposedly found as a baby after the Boudican Revolt, as we now have to call it, or Bodicea, as it was known when I was young. And therefore, she is very conscious of the story of that revolt because it's tied up with who were her real parents. She will never know. And that's what she's referring to, obviously. But she tends not to go along with people who want to make her out to be exotic. People are always saying, is it true you're a druid? And very occasionally she toys with that idea just to be wicked, but mostly she hates it. So people who are from the British Isles, were they thought of as backwards or exotic? I don't know that they were seen as backwards. It was a very long way away and it was seen as very remote. I set a book in Roman London once and my inspiration for it was, oddly enough, it was a trip I'd made to Alaska and the way that people view Anchorage, as they put it, the end of the road, was, I think, how maybe Londinium would have been viewed as just about as far as you can go and you're still in the empire. And anything exotic that you can tie to that particular province will be. So that's exciting that you wrote about Roman London. Can you tell me about your adventures in Londinium? So that's in one of my Falco series, and it's called The Jupiter Myth. And it's a story where Falco happens to be there because he was there for the previous book. And I've taken it that Roman London is struggling to come into existence. It's struggling to repair the damage from the Boudican Revolt. But it's also falling prey, as Anchorage in Alaska fell prey, to organised criminals who see it as a new place to go and set up things like brothels and organised crime. So that was fun. Lindsay, you've written loads of books on ancient Rome now, all of the Falco series, and now you're working on the Albia series. Your experience of ancient Rome, has that changed over time after doing all of this writing, engaging with all these characters across the Roman Empire? Well, first of all, I had to learn about it because I had some knowledge of it when I was at school but once I started to actually write about Rome I really had to go back to the beginning and do the research into the history of it and and the geography and so my knowledge has increased I've been doing it for 30 years and in the Arbius stories it was quite interesting that I brought her to Rome and I set all of the books in Rome whereas Falco had gone to other countries from time to time and each of the first seven is set on one of the seven hills. And I went deep into what we know about each of those hills and what their characteristics were and what the buildings were and what the people might have been like in a way that I found very refreshing. I beefed up my own knowledge of the topology of Rome. And of course, in the time that I've been writing, more has been found out mainly by archaeology. So I have sometimes had to adapt what I've said in an early book and change it when we've learned something different. Over the last 30 years, what have been the big things that have changed in historians' approach to ancient Rome? 
The really big annoying thing is that they now think that Vesuvius didn't erupt on the 24th of August, which I could always remember because it was my parents' wedding anniversary. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doubly annoyed by this. The suggestion now is that it might have been in October. So all my references to Vesuvius are wrong, perhaps. I've lived long enough to think in 10 years' time they'll change background and they'll say, oh, no, it was the 24th of August after all. Ah, yes, quite. Don't make your edits too quickly. (laughs) The thing I always remember is that when I was writing that book set in Londinium, the Museum of London have always done a lot of archaeology, of course, and they discovered their famous water wheels when I was halfway through the book. And so... I reached a point where I was actually stuck and had Falco chasing somebody and he turns aside and he goes into somewhere where those water wheels are and it was the very day that they issued the press notice about them. (laughs) So the museum was absolutely staggered that I'd managed to get their wheels into a book so quickly. The unfortunate thing was that they changed their minds over how the water wheels operated. I can't remember which way around it is but Either they started off, they turned on a horizontal plane or vertically, and whichever way it was, they changed their minds later. So I was wrong in my book. But (laughs) it's only fiction. (laughs) Ah, yes, well, it's just fiction, of course. And now we come on to the big question. Where do you draw the line between, you know, making a compelling narrative and making it all up and staying true to history? When I'm being really wicked, I say my job is to persuade you that what I'm saying is true. And if I invent something, how will you ever know if I've done it right? And people go all quivery when I say that. There's two theories about writing historical novels. And one is that it doesn't really matter. And the other is that why do it? This is what I feel. Why do it unless you make it as real as it can be and as authentic as it can be? Because otherwise you could go away and you could write science fiction or fantasy if you wanted to make it all up. And for me, the whole point of writing a historical novel is to imagine what it might really have been like then. Though we'll never know what it was like absolutely to live 2000 years ago. So there has to be a certain amount of imagination involved. So a little detour, just a little detour away from ancient Rome. You've also written a book on the English Civil War. Yes, that's my real period. Oh, is it okay? That's what I wanted to write about. That's the period I used to love the most, though I have come to, obviously, to really love the Romans. When I started, nobody wanted the kind of books I write, which tend to have a romantic thread running through them, even if they deal with gore and the evils of society. So I changed not knowing that it would become the rest of my life. I changed to writing about the Romans because I thought nobody else was doing it. If you go into any bookshop now or look online, you'll be flabbergasted to think that the idea of Roman fiction was very hard to sell, in fact. I think every major publisher was offered my early books and said no, they thought they were too scary for the audience. But now I'm the grandma of all those lads writing about centurions and (laughs) gladiators. Yes, well, I suppose you've really stuck to that niche and now it's in hot demand. 
But it is surprising, I think, that there wasn't deemed to be an appetite or an audience for this kind of ancient Roman fiction. Well, you see, I think there was an audience. I just think publishers were very hidebound and scared. And they do still to this day. They like a new novelist to be writing something they recognise, following someone who has already proved to be popular. But you're writing all these novels and they're all about the same characters. They're about the same characters, but they are all different. But how do you keep it fresh and exciting? I mean, I suppose they just come across loads of different challenges and adventures. They do, yes. And because they always were a kind of spoof novel in some ways, a Roman detective, come on, (laughs) Philip Marlowe in a toga, really. (laughs) Well, of course, you mentioned earlier that you thought about your characters as being a bit of a joke. Yes. And that's a really unusual way to be using historical fiction. Can you tell me about that? Well, I started to do that even with Falco because he was a bit of a spoof. It was a joke idea. I wanted them to be fun, to be honest, and I I think they were and they still are. And Falco is at the very beginning of the reign of Vespasian. He is a Republican. So we take the idea that Vespasian hated informers, which is what detectives are called in ancient Rome. He hated the ones really that Nero had used, but he needs someone to do quiet investigation for him. So he hires Falco. And there is then an antagonism, but also a mutual dependency between them. And we have lots of jokes about that. And Falco also, when he started, he was a complete loner. He was like Philip Marlowe. He lived at the top of a tall building and had horrible jobs brought to him that he didn't want, that he wouldn't be paid for. And he was very disreputable. But he turns into, in the course of the series, he turns into a classic Roman paterfamilias. He meets the girl he's meant to live with, Helena Justina, his partner in life and work. They go on to have children. They have a dog who people adore their dog more than anybody (laughs) else, I think. And so he becomes the head of a household. He's always been the person who had to look after any orphans in the family and pay the mother's rent, his mother's rent, and things like that. So he was always a good boy, really, although he looked disreputable. And he turns into an archetypal head of a household. So that's a joke in itself, really. A good old bit of humour, keeping it real. It keeps it real, but it also enables him to be satirical about the the view of traditional Roman society that is put forward. First, it was put forward by Roman writers who were invariably writing for an elite male audience. So there's a whole lot of other things to be said by someone like me, who is basically of working class origins, and Falco, who is the same. And we've got the same thing with Flavia Albia because she comes from a history she doesn't know and she's married to a a man who is very plebeian. So throughout, I am being satirical about what the textbooks tell you. Oh, yeah. I think, Lindsay, it's a really interesting approach. Satire is such a cutting tool, really, isn't it? (laughs) very interesting to write. It's much more interesting than solemnly intoning what you're supposed to think. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, Lindsay, you used to work in the civil service and many of our listeners might have aspirations to become a novelist or they might just enjoy writing fiction. How did you go from being in the civil service to becoming 
a historic author. What? How did I get out? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was in the time of Margaret Thatcher, which was in itself very depressing, if you were an old-style administrator. I do have bureaucracy in my blood, and to this day, I am not just an author writing, but I'm a small business and I run it properly. And, And I love the Romans because they were a giant bureaucracy. So that gives me a lot of material, actually. I can talk a lot about clerks doing dockets and committees running things. There are jokes there, but also that's how the empire was run. And it was run that way, even if the emperor was a barn pot paranoid tyrant. So my feeling is that we we should be respectful about the civil service, although quite often when Falco or Albion run up against them, there's a bit of tension there. So you've just compared aspects of modern civil service with the ancient world. Is there anything that, you know, looking at our two worlds apart, is there anything that you think we could learn from the ancient Roman world? Well, the one that is closest to my heart is the Roman view of marriage, which was simply that it was, although you could have contracts, you could have ceremonies, but basically Roman marriage was two people decide to live together. And Roman divorce was one of them or both of them decide not to. And added to that was the concept that for a a Roman man, or presumably also for a Roman woman, um, marriage was the place where you could be entirely frank, secrets that you wouldn't even say to your best friends and your political allies, you would tell to your wife. So I think they had a a very good ver- version of what a partnership ought to be. That's not what people would generally quote. They quote the roads or the armies or what have you. Yes, that's the textbook answer though. <laughs> and that's why I write about the Romans, not the Greeks, which is another question I get asked because in Greek society, the women were locked away in the women's quarters. They didn't have any role at all. Whereas the way I always put it is when a Roman went out to dinner, he would take his wife. Whereas when a Greek went out, there'd be a flute girl. (laughs) Yeah, well, everyone likes to be taken out for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do, yes. And sadly, at the moment, I can't. And that's one of the things I am missing hugely. (laughs) So have you got any big plans for the future? Any more books coming up? Well, yes, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because I wrote 20 books about Falco, can I write 20 books about Albia? And I have worked out that if I continue at one book a year, I'm going to be 83 when I finish. But at the moment, I I see that as a goal to head for. (laughs) Wow, I mean... That is a remarkable amount of books to have written. So congratulations already. Thank you very much. I mean, <laughs> well, Lindsay, that's all we've got time for. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you, Alice. Historical fiction.